you have your Bibles handy, I invite you to be turning with me to Matthew chapter 27. We gather on the first day of the week as we are instructed in Scripture to worship the God of heaven. We sing and we pray, we give of our means, we study his word and we commune with him at his table. We've already done and already had our communion, but I would like for our minds to continue to be at the cross with, of Calvary with Jesus Christ. As we think about sacrifice that he made and the measure that God went to to save me and you from our sin, the price that was paid for his church, the price that was paid for each one of our souls and each soul of everyone whom Joe prayed earlier about reaching all those who are lost. In Matthew 27, beginning at verse 24, I appreciate uh, Warren reading 27 through 31. I want to read these first three verses. Verse 24, the Bible says, When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Oftentimes when we think about the cross, we think about, and rightfully so, Christ hanging for those six hours or so hanging from between heaven and earth, nailed to a, an old rugged cross. And we read verse 26, and we just read, after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Scourging was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution, except for women, Roman citizens, I mean Roman uh, senators, and soldiers, unless their disobedience was that of desertion. The usual instrument was a short whip, several leather thongs or straps of varying lengths. And in those straps, there would be metal balls placed at different intervals. And in between those intervals, there would be sharp teeth that were placed in between that. And when a person was scourged, his raiment was taken off from him, and he was tied to a post, exposing his arms and his back in a very strong way so that the muscles in his shoulders and back would come to the forefront. Usually two soldiers did the scourging, each one taking a turn to beat the victim. If it were only one person, then that person would move from side to side. The severity of the scourging was a, it was determined primarily by the 
the temperament of the one doing the scourging. And it was intended to weaken that victim and make that person die quicker on a cross. And as they were beaten with the scourging, with the whip, the balls would break the skin and cause contusions and other problems with the back. And then in when the back was open, then the sharp teeth would cut into the tissues that were below the surface of the skin, headed down to the bones. And with each blow, the blood would flow, oftentimes causing a shock of the circulatory system in the person. And when the person was at the very point of death, a very point of collapse, then he would be removed from the scourging post. And the soldiers would taunt that individual. We read verses 27 through 31 where they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And how they twisted the crown of thorns and the thorns being anywhere from an inch to two inches thick on, that, on the vine and twisted that crown together and placed it on his head and beat it into his head with a rod, with a reed. And then the Bible says that they knelt in front of him mocking him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then that scarlet robe by this time had had adhered itself, no doubt, to the open back that had been exposed with the scourging all the way down to the bones. And then they would take that off, and I don't imagine that it was taken off in a gingerly way. I imagine it was ripped off. And then they led him away to be crucified. The cross would have been an upright beam and a cross beam. The upright beam probably already in the ground and the, and the cross beam weighing somewhere between 75 and 125 pounds was placed on the victim's shoulders and on his, on his back. And his hands were tied to that beam. In John 19 and verse 17, the Bible says that they placed that on Jesus and he, he led the he, let, he walked away trying to carry that cross. We also read in Matthew 27 and verse 32 how that Simon had to be brought in to help Jesus carry the cross. If you've been beaten to that degree at a scourging post where you're barely able to stand and barely able to even breathe and barely able even to live, and then you put 100 plus pounds on your shoulder and walk away with it. He was led by a centurion and a whole Roman uh, garrison or a whole Roman uh, army. There was a sign that they would carry with him, letting people know who this victim was. And we know the sign said, in Jesus' case, Jesus, the, the king of the Jews. And they led him away to Calvary to, to, be, to be crucified in our place after taking the a merciless, a beating without mercy. 
at the hands of those who had perfected it to where he was beaten the very inch of his life. And that sign then would be placed on the top of his uh, cross. And Matthew 27 and verse 37 says, And above his head they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. A drink was given to him, a drink of bitter wine or um, of that. In verse 48 of this chapter, it says, Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. That was given as some type of pain relief. That's what, at least that's what the scholars believe. And as he got to as he got to the the crucifixion site, he was thrown onto his back, and then his hands were attached to that beam with nails, probably through his wrists, to keep from breaking the bones. Those nails would have been five to seven inches in length, somewhere in a, with a square drive on there with about three-eighths of an inch across that thickness of that nail. They were pounded into his wrists, and then with a rope he was lifted up, and that that was attached or placed on the pole that was already in the ground, and then his feet were attached. I read a number of places where most, some people would attach them with, 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 with rope, but the, the Romans preferred nails, and so his, his feet were nailed to that same cross. And so for those hours of agony on that cross, he would have to lift himself to some degree to try to breathe because the weight would just pull him down, and he would drown in his own fluids inside. And he'd pull himself up to breathe, and he'd drop back down, and pull himself up to breathe and drop back down. And you can imagine after the those many hours of agony on that cross, he didn't have the strength to pull himself up very much. And so the closer he got to death, the more he was choking, the more he was trying to get breath. And as he hanged there, and as he was hanging, the Bible says in verse 39 of our chapter, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Can you imagine the world walking by, seeing this man hanging there in three and a half years, they'd heard him teaching that I am the son of God. He had proved that with miracles. He'd proved that with his teaching. He'd proved that with his very life. And they're walking by mocking him, saying, you saved other people. If you're the son of God, come down off the cross. And the one who had created this world certainly could have come down off the cross. The one who created this world certainly could have spoken and the angels would have come and saved him and destroyed those people. But we sang the song. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he didn't say a word. Because it wasn't the nails that held him on that cross. It was his love for me that held him there. 
And it was his obedience to his father coming to this earth and fulfilling that plan. Oftentimes, to make sure that the person was dead on the cross, they would come and break his legs so that that person could not have any strength to push from. The Bible says in John 19, 33 and 34, that when they came to Jesus and found that he was dead already, they didn't break his bones, which fulfilled a prophecy in Old Testament scripture. But they pierced his side. Romans were experts at piercing the side of a person and sending that spearhead directly through the heart. And when they pierced the side, blood and water flowed out. And it is that blood that was shed at that cross that washes away our sins. The custom was to leave the body hanging and let the birds of prey come and pick it clean for after the next few days. But the families could beg the body And so Joseph of Arimathea went and begged for the body of Christ and took him off, and they got him off before the Sabbath day. What did the world see in those hours of trial and anguish? As the world looked at this one who claimed to be and proved himself to be the son of God. What did the world see? They saw saw someone weak and weary. He wasn't even able to carry his own cross. They saw someone that was reviled a time and time again and was rejected and was forsaken by all of his disciples. They saw... In their, in their eyes, they saw the one who claimed to be the Savior of the world, bruised and battered and dying. And they saw him shamed and then stabbed. Deuteronomy 21, verse 23 says in the Old Testament, it's cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. In Galatians 3, and verse 13, Paul said, he became the curse for us that we might have faith or have salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the world saw. Number two, what do you and I see when we look at that cross? We see something far different than that. We see a sacrifice for the sin of the entire world. When John introduced him to Israel, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John 1, verse 29. Here was the one that was fulfillment of Exodus chapter 12, along with a number of other fulfillments of pictures in the Old Testament. But he was our Passover Lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. He was the one by the grace of God that tasted death for every man. Hebrews 2 and verse 9. Not only that, we see an obedient servant who was obedient to his father. When we read that night in the garden where he was betrayed by Judas, read read prior to the betrayal that he prayed to his father. 
And he prayed the same prayer three times, Matthew tells us. And the prayer was, let this cup pass from me. But if not, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thine. Three times Jesus prayed that prayer. But every time he ended it was saying, not my will be done, but your will. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, that he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, the most painful, shameful, humiliating death known to mankind. He didn't just die. He didn't just get killed by somebody accidentally. Premeditated murder, premeditated torture, premeditated death, excruciating as man could make it. But we deserve to be there. But he was obedient to his father. He even said, I only do those things that please my father. When I read that, I wonder when he looks at my life and when he looks at our lives, do we only do those things that please our father? That's the example we have to follow. We see a loving savior who who came to seek and save the lost, Luke 19, verse 10. Paul said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. He owned it all. He created it. Everything was his. He owned it all, and he gave every bit of it up. Why? So that I can one day go and own it all with him, and so can you, and so can any obedient person to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number four, he left us an example. First Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23 said, He left us an example that we should follow in his steps. I wonder, as he looks at our life, how close do we follow that example in our lives? When there is suffering to be done, when there is persecution to be done, when there is a difficult time to be had and the Lord expects us to be that person standing in the gap. Do we always stand in that gap like we ought? But he was the man. He was the son of man. He was the son of God that we sang about. He was the one who stood in the gap for me and you that we can stand before God justified this morning and, and worship him. He saw we see a caring son who entrusted his mother to the care of another. In John chapter 19, in verse 26, the Bible says, When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Here was the Son of God hanging in agony and pain, dying for mankind, for every person who would ever have lived or ever will live. But he still cared about his mom. And he still cared about the disciple. When we are oppressed on all sides and when we're suffering for the cause, do we still care about those individuals round about us? 
do we not make it about us, but we make it about him and his cause. Here was the one dying for me, dying for you, and he cared about his mother and he cared about the disciple in the midst of his pain and suffering that none of us will ever experience to that degree. We also see a forgiving Savior who wanted to forgive those who were ignorant. From the cross, he also said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They weren't forgiven there on the day of Pentecost when, when, when Peter had exposed the Jews to what they had done and, and made them realize that they had killed the Savior. He didn't, they didn't, when they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Jesus, Peter didn't say, no, you don't have to do anything. Jesus forgave you at the cross. That wasn't his answer. He told them to repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. That's the answer. It's the answer today. It was the answer then. It'll be the answer 10,000 years from now. Time continues to stand. It'll always be the answer. But Jesus' attitude was, I want to forgive you. I wonder if when he looks at me and you, when somebody does us wrong, somebody says something about us behind our back, somebody, somebody betrays us, somebody tries to harm our families. I wonder if, we, if, we, if he sees a person who says, Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. I want them to repent. I want them to be forgiven. Or do we sometimes say, I deserve to be able to take out my vengeance on that person. That wasn't what he said. We also see a friend who laid down his life for his friends. In John 15 and verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Verse 14. He laid down his life. For his friends. And then last under this point, we see a courageous warrior who entered into battle against death itself. You remember on the at Caesarea Philippi when Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this unto you, but your my Father in heaven. And I say unto you, Thou art Peter, a very small stone. And upon this rock, this massive rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I'm going to go into the Hadean world, Peter. I'm going to die, he tells him in just a few moments. I'm going to die, but that's not going to stop the establishment of my church. I will come forth victorious. The Bible says in Romans 1-4 that God declared him to be the, his son when he raised him from the dead. You imagine on the, on the first day of the week, the devil thought, maybe, 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 maybe I won this battle. Maybe he won't come out. And then the earthquake. And God undoubtedly spoke and said, arise, my son. And he walked out of that tomb, a risen Savior, having defeated death on its own terms. That's who we serve.
He defeated it for us, so we don't have to worry about that. We can walk through that valley, and we know by faith what's on the other side because he's already gone there for us. He was victorious. Never in the history of man has there been such a death with so many different contrasts. You think about at the cross of Calvary, Christ, the Christ of Calvary. Think about the hatred and the love that was at the cross. Think about the hatred of the people. They hated him, absolutely despised him to the point of lying about him, making up lies so that they could have him put on a cross and killed to get out of the way. But then we read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. No greater love than this, Jesus said, that a man lay down his life for his friends. The hatred that was surrounding the cross and yet the love that was shown by God and his son at the cross. We think about sin and forgiveness. 1 Peter 2 verse 24 says that Jesus bore all of our sins Every sin that man ever had committed, ever would commit, all of those sins, Jesus put on those beaten shoulders and took them to the cross and paid the price for us. Think about the sin that put him there. Not his sin, but the sin of envy that the Jews had. The sin of lying about him. The betrayal of Judas and the mock trial. All the sin that surrounded the cross. Not his sin, but everybody else's sin, yet from the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. That was the means. He was raised for our justification, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3. Think about the darkness and the light on that day. From 12 till 3 in the afternoon, total darkness over the entire earth. The darkness of man's sins, the darkness of man's attitude, the darkness that prevailed on the earth, and yet at the same time, the light of the world hanging on a cross. And that light shined when the centurion saw the events. He said, truly this was the Son of God. The hopelessness and the hope. The disciples fled. Hopelessness. Here was, here was their Savior. Here was their King. Here was their Messiah. Here was the one they'd followed for three and a half years. Here was the great... He, 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 was, he was the one they had looked for. And he allowed himself to be killed on a cross. They were, they were heartbroken and hopeless. Yet he had told them, Be of good cheer. I will overcome the world. And you will too. There's hope there. And then think about the sorrow and the joy. Think about the mother who had been told during her pregnancy that she was favored by God and that that which was inside of her was going to be the Son of God. 
Think of her excitement that she was going to get to rear the very Son of God. She was a godly woman. No doubt she knew the Old Testament prophecies. She knew who he was and what he was going to do, but she also knew if she knew the prophecies, and I know she did, what was going to happen to him when she read Isaiah 53. And imagine the, the, the sorrow and the pain that she saw when she saw her son beaten and nailed to a cross and mocked and rejected and reviled. Think of the sorrow that she had to be going through. But then the joy when he said to John, Behold your mother. Behold your son. And from that day forward, John took care of Jesus' mom. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, that Jesus viewed the cross with joy. Here's, here's the Son of God hanging in pain and agony, knowing his breath is about to be taken from him, all of it. And his heart was joyful because he was fulfilling the plan. He was fulfilling the mission. He was paying the price where men could come unto him and be saved and be his brethren. And he could be their brother and God could be their God. And that would last for an eternity. And then last, think about the cruelty also the mercy that was at the cross. You know, in Exodus chapter 12, Moses was given direct and strict instructions as to how to handle that Passover lamb. In Exodus 12 and verse 10, God told Moses, you shall not leave any of it over until morning. Whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. That sacrifice will be totally consumed. It will be all-encompassing. It will be totally gone. And to fulfill that, you think of the cruelty that Jesus went through at the cross. Total cruelty. Total hatred. Total anger, total beating, total pain, blood loss. But think of the mercy that God was extending at the same time to sinful man where man could come unto him and be saved. What do we see when we, like, when we look at the cross and we look at the Christ of Calvary? Do we make it personal? Because every one of us would be in our sin this morning if it weren't for the cross of Calvary. If it weren't for the Christ who went to that cross at Calvary. Every one of us would live a hopeless life with no way or no means 
to pay for our own sin. Not even one can we pay for. Not even one sin could we pay for. And yet Jesus paid for all of them. But look what it cost him. Somebody says, well, I don't know, you know, preacher, I don't think the church really is all that important. Not that big a deal. One church ought to be as good as another church. Can anyone honestly look at the cross with any depth at all? and say to Christ hanging there in agony and blood running, and the church not that important, not that big a deal. I can't look at the cross and say anything but thank God I'm free. And I can be a member of the church that he purchased with his own blood, Acts 20, verse 28. This morning, if you're not a member of the, of the church, Acts 2, 47, the one for whom Christ died, the one that's paid for by the very blood of Jesus, you need to be. We can't be saved without reaching the blood. It is the blood that saves us. Ephesians 1, 7, Colossians 1, 13 and 14, redemption is through the blood. We reach that blood in being baptized into his death, Romans 6, 3 and 4. As he shed his blood in the process of death and then even in his death when the spear was punched into his heart and into his side and blood flowed out, the blood flowed in his death. And Paul says we're baptized into that death, we're baptized into that blood and God will add that blood to our lives and wash away our sins and raise us out of that water a New Testament Christian. Saved, saved by the blood of Jesus, the grace of God. It takes our obedience. But our obedience by itself, Titus 3, 3 through 5, cannot be worthy of that without the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. Have you rendered obedience to that gospel call by being by being? Baptized for the remission of your sins, having believed in Christ, repented of your sins, confessed his name, being immersed in water. And those of us who have, how do we as Christians view sins? Some people think, well, no big deal. You know, nobody's perfect. Everybody's going to sin. No big deal. Every sin that man has committed or will commit is what put Jesus at the cross. And it's what held Jesus on the cross. Leaving undone a good thing. Having a bad thought about somebody. Losing my temper and losing my anger. Being obstinate and, and willfully sinning. Sinning in an ignorant way, not knowing that I'm sinning. All those sins are what put him at the cross. This morning, if we're here as a child of God, we've wandered away. We haven't been living that life that's, that reflects how much we appreciate the sacrifice at Calvary. We have the opportunity to come back. If you need the prayers of this congregation in any way this morning, 
The Lord invites you. While together we stand, while we sing.